I always tell the residents when I lecture to them that eating disorders should always be on your differential. It's just Mm -hmm. a matter of where Mm -hmm. sometimes they're going to be towards the bottom, but it should always be there. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it'll be way up high, but don't Mm -hmm. ever forget about it because it affects every single system and organ in your body. So any complaint could be the result of an eating disorder. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. I could not wait to introduce you to Dr. Michaela Voss. She's the medical director at the Eating Disorders Center at Children's Mercy Hospitals and Clinics in Kansas City, Missouri. So her full bio is in the show notes. Just wanted to let you know that she will be following us through all the medical series. It's finally here. I've been saying October, November, and um, we are just now end of October and just now rolling it out. But I'm going to tell you she's right. We have some celebrity, she calls them celebrity celebrity medical professionals coming up and you're going to love it. But she's with us on all of these. Dr. Voss lets us know as medical professionals, we don't have to have a diagnosis and we can help our patients know that we will figure it out and it's okay to do that. We get to work in both the mental and physical health. She talks us through how to identify a target weight range for these kids. And then my favorite phrase is your body will tell us where it needs to be. Basically, we asked her, how does the body tell you? And she tells us. Also, how to ascertain between an athletic heart versus a malnourished heart because the athletic heart is strong and well-nourished and the malnourished heart, both of them can show up as bradycardia or a low heart rate. Bottom line is, as a primary care doctor, if you're listening to this, people don't need to be a specialist in the eating disorders world to catch and treat eating disorders. They're there. They don't discriminate. We all, as healthcare providers, check our biases at the door and make sure to include eating disorders as a potential diagnosis within our differential. Well, hello, Dr. Michaela Vaz. We are so glad you're here with us today. Thank you. I'm super glad to be here. Hello, hello. Yes, we are really excited to have you a part of our medical series and a guest for all of the other medical series that we'll be doing. It's going to be great. I can't wait. Yeah. So I should say that Dr. Voss is going to be our guest co-host for the medical series coming out in October, November, hopefully of 2021. All right. So mountains or beach? Hmm. Mountains, hands down. (laughs) And I'll tell you why. I love to hike up and I love to ski down. (laughs) (laughs) I can't handle sand in my feet. (laughs) 
And I'm one of those weird people where the waves drive me crazy. Like they never stop. I don't know if anyone else ever feels that way. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm can... like, just, just the noise never goes away. It's always there and they never stop. And it kind of makes my brain go a little nuts. You know... And I think that might be the result of me living and growing up in the Midwest. <laughs> You're just not used to it. Right. And there's just a lot of stimulation with that. Yes. So with the hiking up and skiing down, it sounds like you like mountains at all seasons because you wouldn't be yes. doing those in the same season. Correct. Yes. Hiking up. Yes. And the, yeah. Well, the best is, is the mountains over in Arizona and like Flagstaff where you really can get both seasons. You That's can have the true. warm the, down below and then the skiing up above. My undergraduate was at University of Arizona in Tucson and Mount Lemmon over there was perfect. We would, you know, get our ski gear stuff and put it in our car and go up there and ski for a little bit and then come down, down in the sun and soak up. And it was great. Mm. Yeah. So mountains all the way. <laughs> well, I understand your reasoning now after all of that. That sounds great. I've never been to the mountains before, but you might've just convinced me to go check it out. Let me know when. Well, I'll be there. (laughs) I've also skied ever since I was three years old. So it's kind of in my blood to do that. Okay. And then breakfast or dinner? Breakfast. I love breakfast for dinner. I, my own heart. I am. Yeah. I'm a sucker for all breakfast foods, Uh, waffles, pancakes, crepes, eggs, and bacon, biscuits and gravy, you name it. Cereal, Mm. toast Mm. and avocado. I've always, always loved breakfast. And a little side note, I grew up not eating pancakes. I grew up eating crepes. My mom has a special recipe that she has made my entire life. And so that's my go-to. Interesting. My was she crepes. raised around crepes too, instead of, um, or if you say it like the French, it would be crepes. Crepe. Um, crepe. Her, the recipe does come, is a family recipe that came down from her mom that she got from some very, very old cookbook somewhere. I don't know. I love it. Yeah. But my mom also lived in France and she is a, um, speaks French fluently. And so she also has a, a heartfelt connection. So she's, that was one of those things that was brought to our family. I love it. Connection and a tradition. Yeah. So do you like sweet or savory crepes? Crepes. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. All of the above. And my mom would make her own syrup too. Oh my gosh, Michaela, Dr. Voss. I'm going to call you Dr. Voss. I do know Dr. Voss because I was had the privilege and honor of working with her for eight years at the Children's Hospital in Kansas City. So last question before we get into our the rest of our time is audiobook or paper book? Audiobook. And my guess is I'm going to predict that most people say paper book because there's just something about holding that book. But my life is a little crazy. And if I get to read for leisure, it's in the car listening. And I have, and Beth's shaking her head like, yeah, yes, I definitely get you. And I joined one of those monthly audio clubs and once I did that and I've heard the professional narrators, I have fallen in love with audiobooks because they are just, 
fantastic with their presentation. And I've also been able to read a lot of professional books and nonfiction books because the narrators make it so I stay awake and it's lively and I can actually listen. Yeah. So it has opened my world to all different kinds of books. So I fully support audio all the way. And that's where my pattern has become, I mean, really on my commute is where I get to listen to books and both fiction, nonfiction. And I do love to hear that voice presentation. Mm-hmm. It's a little different with the inflections and the thing, the mm-hmm. areas that they want the emphasis on. And it does, it keeps me entertained a lot more than reading those words yeah. <laughs> on a paper. And you said that, right? Because then I also know that it's emphasized the way that the author wants it. And so some of them, like the autobiographies, the author reads them themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you, you, it's a whole different take on it because you're hearing it from their own mind and their own words exactly as they want it. And so Mm -hmm. yeah, encourage people to give it a shot. Okay. Well, I'm going to, because this podcast is for all professionals in the field of eating disorders, medical therapy, strength, you know, fitness Mm -hmm. professionals and dietitians. You are a medical doctor. Yes. And you have had to take lots of schooling and a board exam or two along the way. So four or five. five. So I'm going to let you pick an exam day that kind of stands out for you, because I'm going to tell you, my daughter just passed her nurse practitioner test. And because we ask this question on the podcast, we've had so many of our guests just talk about the different traumas of that day and what it was like. And, and Abby, I have to tell you the same thing that you said was like the screen went black and then she had to answer all these questions before she got her results. And that's like so dramatically drawn out. Anyways, back to you, Dr. Voss. What, can you bring us back to an exam day? Yes. So my, my Gen Peds boards was my last one that I had to take. My adolescent medicine boards is coming up, but I had just had a baby And so I was just a few months postpartum. And at that time, things were computerized, which was nice, but there was no accommodations for lactating mothers. And so I, it was, it was a trip. I had to, I, so Gen Peds boards is an all day exam. It's like eight hours of testing plus an hour I, maybe an hour total of break throughout there. And so obviously I had to pump during that time and I didn't get any kind of extension for break or in any kind of accommodation. So there was no lactation room or anything. And so I found myself in my little 15 minute breaks, scurrying over to the bathroom and there was only two stalls there. And so I'm taking up one of the stalls pumping and everyone else is in line trying to get through the bathroom in their little breaks. Oh it's horrible because everyone's like, what's going on? Why do we only have one bathroom? And I'm over there like just you know, pumping my milk, trying That's to be right. as clean as possible while sitting, sitting on the toilet. in the <laughs> toilet. Yeah. Oh my and case. then stressing about the time and being able yes. to get back and answer my questions. And, oh, I mean, I look back and I laugh now, but at the time it was so stressful and I am very happy to say that they have adjusted that and they now have accommodations for lactating mothers. So you can go to a facility that has a special room and you can get Mm -hmm. extended breaks to do that, which is 
I think a great evolution that was desperately wow. needed. But right? I mean, I took one for the team, man. You did take <laughs> one for the team. Thank you, Dr. Voss. I feel right. silly for ever complaining about my little <laughs> I feel the my same goodness. way, Abby. <laughs> that and, is story. And still to this day with medical boards, it's months before you find out if you pass or not. So is it by, wow, that's even awful. Mm -hmm. Is it because it's not multiple choice? Are there some essay or? No, it's multiple choice, but it's it's all, what do they call that? Leveled or graded? Mm, You know, it's all dependent upon how everyone else does. Okay. Yep. Yep. And so, and so they go through and they analyze the questions and then they statistically look at some, if enough people got them wrong, they'll throw Mm -hmm. it out, which then readjust and everybody gets different questions. So they have to like, take into account if you got harder questions than other people, then your score will be reflected. I don't know. It's kind of like the, the, the NFL way on the, how they determine who is ranked first and second. It's like some secret (laughs) equation out there that no one's allowed to know. And so you sit there for two or three months and then you find out if you pass or not. That's, that sounds awful to me. Okay. So how did you get into the medical profession and the eating disorders? So I actually refused to go into the medical profession. I said, I am not going to be a doctor, no matter what you guys are crazy. That is not going to be me. So I went to school and I, I do love science though. So I was a chemist and I was a chemist for four years and I found that I absolutely loved the science and I was working on pharmaceutical development. So I was kind of dabbling in the medical world from that side But I decided that I did not like being in a lab by myself in the basement of a VA next to the morgue. (laughs) Turns out that's not for me. And so I I decided to go into medicine because it was that perfect combination of science and people interaction. So that's what got me there after four years of dabbling in the world of chemistry. And then from there... Pediatrics was a pretty easy choice. And then I subspecialized in adolescent medicine. I did my fellowship in Seattle, Washington. And that was also a little bit of a, a happenstance upon. I, I knew I wanted to do something that involved the whole body and had some really nice variety but that was a little bit more problem solving and intense than a general pediatrician would do. And so adolescent medicine fits that with a T and then even further specializing in eating disorders is, is perfect because I get to work on every single body organ and part. And I get to really take a look at the entire picture, both mental health and physical health. And I sometimes find myself being a kidney specialist one day and a GI doc the next and a psychiatrist the day after. And I just absolutely love that kind of variety, but also not so much variety that I can't learn and really specialize in a particular area. So it's a perfect fit for my brain. So I am personally grateful that you took the chance on medical. I've learned so much from you in my time at the Children's Hospital at the Eating Disorder Center for Adolescents and and Kids. And so when you talked about the entire picture, the physical, the mental, the kidneys, the heart, the, you know, there's so much. One of the things as a dietitian working with you was we're looking at growth charts and trying to determine 
what maybe a healthy weight might be. And I don't know what you're calling it in your center anymore, but you know, there's all kinds of terms like ideal body weight can send people the wrong message and normal body weight can send it and healthy. We use um, target. I've, I've switched us over to say target weight range. And, and I like that it's a target because we're taking what we, the best, I don't want to say guess, but really the best guess based on our experience, as well as the family's experience, as well as the growth charts data that we have from before. And we set a target. And then, you know, I really tell the families that although we do have this weight in mind, and this is a target goal, it is not the ultimate goal. Your body will tell us where it needs to be. And so sometimes our target weight will be over where it should be. Sometimes it'll be under where it should be, but it's a place to start with. How do you know? Yes. This is what I miss so much about having (laughs) you write down the hall because I just, I don't have that ability. And most of the primary care doctors don't really understand how to determine where that is. Yeah. And it really is going back to that whole body picture. And so I am looking at so many different factors. I'm looking at the vital signs and seeing what their heart is doing and what does their heart do after they walk down the hall and back and is it, does it look like it's a healthy heart and it's responding appropriately with the rates and the strength that it has? I'm looking at how is their GI system working? Cause it shuts down when you go into malnourished state. So has, has it woken back up and is it metabolizing the food in a proper way where they're no longer feeling bloated and they're constipated and what is their body temperature doing? Are they able to keep their body warm? And then I also look a lot at and and try to stress to the families that we can see what's happening on the outside, but we can't see what's happening on the inside. So getting some of those labs is helpful, but really a lot of it is as we progress, we try some things and I can tell if the body's ready for it or not. And that's why we follow them so closely, right? So if they're doing great and they've gained weight and their exam is looking better, their vital signs are better, their symptoms are resolved, we start some more intense activity. And if that activity, sometimes the parents will come back and they'll say, all we did was go to Oceans of Fun, which is our local like water park, or we just went to the the amusement park and it was a full day of fun. And why did they lose two pounds in a week? And you say, well, that's because their body doesn't have the storages. So even though they look good on the outside, I know on the inside that energy storage isn't there yet. And so those little tiny things that wouldn't affect us make a huge difference to their body. So they're still healing inside. And that is an indicator that we're just not there yet. So I am a big believer in, in trends. I don't like to treat somebody based on one point in time. I like to treat somebody based on what their body is doing over multiple time points. And yeah, that's how we kind of approach things. Well, I was just going to say, it goes to show that it, it can't just be an equation that somebody came up with at one point in time that tells right. Exactly where this individual should be. I mean, you go to great lengths to figure out this number that it was so yeah. interesting to know. I didn't realize that all of it went into that. Yeah. Well, because dietitians, we have, what are the ones, Abby, that you're taught in school? Formulas for calorie needs. Yeah. Oh gosh. Um, like the Hamley method. Yeah. That's the height and weight. Yeah. yeah. 
There's so many. There's I, so I do many. body weight equation. And yeah. I do body weight and then calorie needs. But again, those are just starting points. And that's one thing that I really appreciated. And Dr. Voss, I was going to ask you, as you mentioned, the, you know, the heart changes and the GI has it woken back up. You mentioned temperature as one of the things that you look at. How do you, is there anything more than just putting a thermometer in their mouth mm-hmm, or on their forehead? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. A lot of things, what I'll tell the the parents and the families are that you have every piece of energy that you put inside your body right now is going to healing your body and your insides. So your body is constantly having to make choices. What is it going to do with that piece of energy? And your body will always choose to keep the heart, brain, bones moving. It will allow other things to sacrifice. So all of those, so the energy goes to your core where all those important organs are, and it doesn't go to your extremities. And so what that shows is that your hands and your feet get cold, they get blue, they get mottled. And all of that is because the body says, I'm okay if you lose a toe, but I'm not okay if you lose your heart. And often the the patients are not eating enough or the body actually has to try to make those decisions on, on behalf of the decreased energy. I would like to run a scenario by you kind of is going off of all of these different things. So something I have run into as a dietitian is I'll be meeting with a patient. Let's just say they're a pediatric and they're not eating enough. I can tell that, you know, they're malnourished. Maybe they haven't eaten anything in a couple of days or had anything to drink. And so sometimes it's severe enough where I suggest to their parent or guardian that they should go to the emergency room and, you know, be examined or Mm -hmm. even better go to like a facility where they could be treated for their eating disorder. But I have run into that. They'll go to the emergency room. Labs will be ran and their labs actually do look okay, even Mm -hmm. though they're starving themselves. And so they'll send them home. So I think one, there needs to be something better that I do on the communication end. But two, what would you say to the doctors, the nurses, whoever that might be examining this patient and their labs do look okay, but they might not really be okay? Yeah. How much more time do we have? Exactly. <laughs> we'll have to have you back. No. Um, and and you're spot on. That's the difficulties, right? If you don't have some of that specialty training, you don't see the subtleties that are occurring. And mm. even more so when you said it happened to be pediatric, our adolescents and our kids, their bodies are so resilient that they hold on and adapt as long as possible. And so very rarely do I get labs that are so abnormal that it would be alarming to an ER doctor or a general pediatrician. That's one of those reasons why I love trends so much because it gives you so much data, but very commonly those labs are within normal limits. And so Mm -hmm. the training and the education that I give is that, well, is that within normal limits for that child? And is that a picture that you would truly expect in this setting? And often when you look at it that way, the answer is no. Yeah, the labs don't have the little L or H next to it signifying low or high, but they really don't look like you would expect for a healthy 14-year-old athlete, right? And so 
really working through that to really have them take a step back and look at the whole body and the whole picture is one of the things that I really focus on. And then there's other things too, with different vital signs, EKGs, and then just explaining the risk of, of them going home and not eating or going home and eating and doing that in an unsafe way because they're eating the wrong types of foods or too much of it at once and no one's there to monitor it. So unfortunately there are some times where that happens. And then we always try to have the families call us the next day. And then we actually end up doing an admission the day after. And that can be really frustrating because they're like, we were just in the ER last night. They told us we're fine. Mm -hmm. Now you're telling us to go straight to the hospital to be admitted. Mm -hmm. What would be the sign that would admit them? What would be your Um, sign? The times that that normally happens is when either the heart rate is scary low. Mm-hmm. And so they might not call us. They might call a cardiology consult who is looking again, just at that one organ and saying that organ, you know, the echo is fine. They don't have an infection. So they're fine, but they're not taking that whole picture into account. So the cardiologist might clear them to go home, but then we see it and we say, Ooh, ooh this is not normal for you. Mm-hmm. And is really concerning that it, it probably is dangerously low at night. The other time, that that happens is when they might look okay in the ER and everything checks out, but their risk trying to nutritionally rehab at home is really, really high. And so it's not safe for them to eat at home. Yeah. Because of refeeding syndrome. Yes. Because of yeah. refeeding syndrome. And it's not safe for them to not eat either. So correct. <laughs> it's um, that fine so line. Those are that the you two times. Yeah. That really requires that specialty training. But, and, and really, I don't think, I mean, if I had to say one thing, no, people don't need to be a specialist in the eating disorder world in order to catch and treat eating disorders. And they don't need to have the medical background. They just need to be aware that they're there. They're prevalent. They don't discriminate. Every person walking through that door could potentially have an eating disorder. And so to check those internal biases Mm -hmm. on what's going on. And I always tell the residents when I lecture to them that eating disorders should always be on your differential. It's just Mm -hmm. a matter of where Mm -hmm. sometimes they're going to be towards the bottom, but it should always be there. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it'll be way up high, but don't Mm -hmm. ever forget about it because it affects every single system and organ in your body. So any complaint could be the result of an eating disorder. We talk about that a lot. I feel like on the podcast is any of us in the medical field, we have to assume that we at some point in time will come across an eating disorder patient, even if that's not our expertise, it's likely to just happen. So we have to be somewhat knowledgeable. Yes, yeah. Definitely. So you said two things, eating disorders do not discriminate. Mm-hmm. What are the main areas that you see medical professionals discriminate or dietitians well, or any Yeah, others? I feel like especially in the medical world and in training, which is really the a lot of times the only time people get information about this, right? Because if you're going into gynecology or neurology or cardiology or whatever, even general peds, it's not on your mind and you're not going to get additional training, but you are exactly as Abby said, going to get people with eating disorders walk through your door. And Mm -hmm. so 
I feel like part of the problem is the only time people learn about it is during training. And when you're training, you focus on boards. And the classic board question is the 16-year-old white female that's in an upper middle class society school and is rail thin and only eating lettuce all day. And so that's all they learn. And we know, we know from years and years of experience and and studies and that that is not the case. You know, the bulimia nervosa is more prevalent in Latino population and African-American than it is in in the Caucasian um, population. Binge eating disorder can look like anything and Age-wise, I mean, eating disorders can occur, and as young as eight, we have an eight-year-old with anorexia nervosa. It can occur in 50, 60-year-olds, and mm-hmm. so it doesn't mean that just because of your age, your sex, your race, that you don't deserve to be treated for that disorder, and yeah. it can't be recognized, it can't be treated. And I want to throw in size. Mm-hmm. The age, race, culture, size, yes. um, gender also, but size is one of those that when I was at the children's hospital that Dr. Sullivan, who's a psychiatrist there, brought to me an article that has changed my world. And it had two case studies of a male, female teenager with atypical anorexia. And I'm going to say that in quotes because in that article, up to 45% of the patients seen in that particular study were atypical meaning that their weight Mm -hmm. is either higher than expected or than what the typical BMI would say, or that they've lost weight, but they're still considered normal weight or above normal. And there's some really nice studies out there that have shown that people that are in larger body size, it takes longer for them to go to the doctor. It, once they get there, it takes longer for them to get diagnosed and they're less likely to get hospitalized despite the fact that the things on paper would look like they are just as if not sicker than somebody with a smaller body size. When they're in the hospital, they have either the same amount of complications or more severe complications than of atypical anorexia versus classic anorexia. And they're less likely to get the higher level treatments of care. They're less likely to be able to get full treatment if they do get there. And we know that all of those delays worsens their prognosis. And so the medical system is really set up to discriminate when people are in larger bodies. And it's a true shame because it's affecting not only them in that moment, but their entire lives and their families' entire lives. Well, and what about, I think that we must have a different perspective on these things because and I'm glad that you have this halo effect as a doctor. I think it can be super helpful sometimes, but when I am often dealing with a parent of a kid who is in a larger body, but they definitely have an eating disorder. Sometimes it almost feels like they don't believe it because their kid isn't like you said, rail thin or the stereotypical eating disorder. So do you ever come across that in the hospital or if they're in the hospital, do they usually just go with it? No, I come across it all the time, both inpatient and outpatient setting. And that's when I'll throw weight out the window. You know, I mean, I will, a lot of times kids in the larger bodies where the weight isn't at a a number that we need to focus on, I don't weigh them. 
I have a handful of patients that come through that one of the vital signs is not weight ever. And we take the focus off of that and we take the focus on their health. And so I say, yeah, you're right. Their body is in a larger size, but here's how I know they're still sick. Look at what their heart's doing. Look at how blue their fingernails are. Look at how constipated they are and how full they get and how nauseous they get after eating one cupcake or piece of fish or whatever it may be. Right. (laughs) Um, I mean, and so so we, we take the emphasis off of the weight and we put it back on health, which is where it should be to begin with. Mm. And I always, always say health determines weight. Weight does not determine health. Oh, love it. You also mentioned the word differential. So for all of you medical professionals, that was an easy one for you. But for those of us who are dietitians, what does differential mean? You so, added, you said add eating disorder to the always on our differential diagnosis yeah. is the, yeah. So when someone comes in with a complaint, you are trained to come in your head, like the top five, 10, however many possibilities of answers of what it could be, because we're always trained that we have to have an answer, right? (laughs) Unfortunately. So the differential diagnosis is anything that could possibly explain what their complaint in their presentation is. And then you are trained to do your physical exam and your labs and your questioning and all of that to try to narrow down what those complaints are and come up with an actual diagnosis. So I always tell them when someone comes in the door and has the chief complaint, which means their number one concern or problem is X, Y, Z eating disorders is always on that list. It's just a matter of if it's a highly suspected or lowly suspected or medium suspected, but don't ever let it drop off the list. Because if you're not thinking about it, you won't diagnose it. From what I understood that there's EKGs can look normal, but there's something that eating disorder specialists look at that's in addition to what cardiologists um, sure. might I mean, look at. Yeah, sure. So there's some subtleties on EKGs that we probably don't need or have the time nor the capacity to cover, mm-hmm. but really it's pretty simple. So I think a lot of times families will come in, especially in our high-end athletes or families that have uh, what they say, they genetically have low heart rates, you know, oh, my wife, she has heart rates in the fifties, you know, that's just how our family runs. And so I say, well, that may be the case. You probably do have genetically low heart rates that run in the family. However, I know in your child that there's something else that's going on and here is why. And I can talk about those EKG changes, but a simple test that anybody can do is the walking the hall test. And so after they lay down for three minutes, you can get their blood pressure, heart rate, see what it is, then have them stand up, walk down the hall and walk back and then take their heart rate and blood pressure again after another three minutes. If it's an athletic heart, meaning that that heart is so well nourished and so well worked and trained that it's a strong muscle that just doesn't need a lot of energy because it's so efficient, that heart rate and blood pressure won't budge just by walking down the hall. And that makes common sense. That makes sense to people, right? Of course, I'm this high-end athlete. My heart's not going to suffer by taking a trip down the hall. I run a marathon last weekend. But 
if that heart rate is slow because it's a sick heart and it's suffering and it's slow because it's conserving energy because it doesn't have enough to do what it needs to do after you walk down that, that hall and back, even after three minutes, that blood pressure and heart rate are not going to look the same. The heart rate in kids will be super, super high and adults. Often you'll see the blood pressure will have dramatic changes to 20 plus points. And so it's something that is very quick and easy to do and makes a lot of sense to families. So I will say your kid just walking down the hall and back, the heart had to work three times as hard just to keep your kid from fainting. Yeah. Yeah. That's how sick your heart is right now. And they get that. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dr. Voss. Yeah. That was, that's pivotal. What you just said, and Abby's shaking her head too. We hear it in our offices, unfortunately, you know, that, oh, well, you know, they're athletic or um, part of my uh, release, medical release that I ask from primary care doctors is just to let me know what kind of activity level is okay for this person so that I can then f- help them fuel as a dietitian for their activities. And everything you just said, I want to frame and like replay over and over in my <laughs> head and over and over in any client or patient who who's struggling with that. Yeah. I know. I wish we could like replicate you, just put you all. (laughs) I know. I wish too, because man, I have a lot of housework to do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah. We are definitely, we are, we are honored to have you as our guest co-host for the upcoming medical series. I am just so excited to have you here and we're going to have to have you back, but I know that your questions for some of our upcoming medical guests are going to be super helpful to our listeners. And Hey Beth, there's just one thing that I was really hoping to say. I started to touch on, I was trying to lead you guys down there, but you didn't go there. Can I just, (laughs) yes. So, and, and what it was when I, I kind of said, you know, we're always trying to have an answer. I was, I was hoping to go there because I think one of the most important things is that as a medical doctor, people come to me and they want a diagnosis and they want an exact fix and an an exact cause. And especially in the eating disorder world, because every person's body is individual and genetics are different and their story is different, both in the past and in the future, I don't always have that exact Mm. answer. And I just want to stress that that's okay. We don't have all the answers. And I can sit there with that family and say, I don't have a diagnosis for you on this one. I am not exactly sure the best way to fix this problem for you. But what I can do is talk through the options with you. I can bear witness and be there with you guys as you go through this process and help you along the way. And we will figure it out together. We might not ever get a true answer, but we'll figure it out to get your kid to a healthy place. And I just really want to stress that that's okay to do in the medical world. Very important for the way that you're trained. And also, as you were talking, I was thinking of the dietitian too, that they come to us for, give me a meal plan, give me this, all I need is this. And that there's so much more to it. It's much Mm -hmm. more Mm -hmm. complicated than that. So Dr. Voss, taking yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? That I don't know as much as I think I know. 
And maybe that that's okay. And that that is definitely okay. I think that that's when you become the specialist. As soon as you realize that you don't know anything is, is when you have tipped over into that world of knowing things, if that makes Mm. any sense. Makes a ton of sense. And again, I, it just really highlights what this podcast is about. We're bringing in different levels of seasoning and yes. those, those of us, like I will say that you were on with us with Dr. Bulick and she had less years of experience than I, but a very different set of experiences. So, the, and there's, there's nothing that I know about genetics like she does. Right. And for you, you know, it doesn't matter. It's like, we're always learning. I'm always learning. She's always learning. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is, is that it's okay to not know, continue to be curious, continue to learn, but expand, not just from the medical textbooks and the medical guidance, learn from those in your team. The multidisciplinary team is there for a reason. It's not just to support the patients, support the providers too. So reach out to those nutritionists or the medical doctor. If you're the nutritionist, reach out to the psychologist or the social worker. They have so much knowledge to share and to give and collaboration is really the key to treating any disease and especially with the eating disorder world. Yep. We need to clone her, Abby. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Voss. We really appreciate your time. You're welcome. This was a complete joy and I am so excited to get to meet all your celebrity guests coming up. (laughs) (laughs) Yay. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash professionals.